Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcast app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. And right on the other side of it was Barb's house. And, and then there was a kind of a duplex thing in front. That house was there. There was another little house that they first moved into right back here. Then this used to be a big, huge courtyard where we all played. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Walner. This is episode 10 of A Better Search for Barbara. April 11 marks 40 years since Barbara Louise Cotton was last seen alive. Forty years, and yet we don't know for certain who saw her last, if she went to a party or not, or if her boyfriend watched her walking from the corner of 4th and Main, or if she even had a boyfriend, or if she got in an argument with her brother, or if she stopped to help a guy who said he had a puppy he wanted to give away. We don't know much of anything. I don't think anyone does. Nobody after 40 years. As far as our search goes, this podcast, A Better Search for Barbara, there will be more episodes after this one, but this episode feels special in a way, as it's the last one to be released before the 40th anniversary this weekend. It feels like it marks the end of a phase or an era. Maybe we should call it the first 40 years. And on April 11, 2021, a lot of people from all over the country will be gathering in Williston to celebrate Barbara's life. It's going to be a special moment and a special day. After this episode, after the 40th anniversary, I expect a new phase to begin in A Better Search for Barbara. I'm staying on this story, staying on the search for Barbara Louise Cotton, not moving on to something else. But I'll put more focus into investigation and research, a little less on getting you the next episode as soon as possible. It's been a little hectic and a little crazy. I mean, nine episodes were released in March alone. That's not sustainable. I do all the editing, research, writing, recording myself. Finding out what happened to Barbara is going to take a lot of work, and work takes time. I've thought long and hard about what this last episode before April 11, 2021 should be about. And I'll tell you, I got stuck, which is not like me. I don't usually get stuck. I usually have too much to say, and God knows there's plenty to talk about. I have some incredibly important interviews set up, more record requests, and lots of leads coming in. So what happened? Why am I suddenly stuck, struggling to come to terms with this episode? Well, it took me some time to understand why, but I figured it out by asking myself some questions. 
The first question was, what was your original intent with this story? The answer is, I was going to go to Williston for one day and finally get to the Barb Cotton disappearance. It would be a quick thing. I'd hopefully find out what route she walked that night. I'd do one story, one episode about this mystery, get all the facts, because surely after 40 years, the facts would be straightforward, I thought. I'd do that and then be done with it. I'd been putting this story off a little bit for a couple of years because I was having trouble finding anyone to talk to me or respond to emails. But as you know, once I got into this, it wasn't just a one-episode story. In fact, this is episode 10. My next question to myself was really some advice posed as a question. Why don't you just round off phase one of this journey by summarizing what you've found? What has Barbara's story told you? Just be honest, what has Barbara brought to you? And it was the answer to this question that helped me understand why I've been resisting putting this episode together at all. Because what I found, what Barbara has brought to me in many ways, is not a story I want to tell. It's not a story I was hoping to tell. It's not a story I ever thought I'd have to tell. It's a story much sadder than we thought. Sure, sad in ways we might expect any time a 15-year-old girl goes missing, but also sad in ways I was not anticipating. I realized that I've been resisting this episode because I didn't want to face reality. And so, dear listener, I'll put it this way. It's 5 a.m. on Easter Sunday, and I sit here feeling burdened with what I can only call an obligation at this point promise to Barbara Louise Cotton that I will do my best not to speak for her, but at least to speak for her story, the story that I'm learning about. Some people won't like or agree with what I have to say, and as I said, I don't even want to be telling it. I want to tell another story, but I can't turn my back on Barbara now. And I want to say I don't claim to speak on the behalf of the Cotton family. The views I have in this episode are mine, and I don't know which, if any, of the Cotton family members agree or not. I've named this episode For the Love of Our Daughters, but it could also have been titled The Story Nobody Wants to Tell. I would go to the movies with friends all the time and walk through that park. I'm standing at the corner of Main Street. Did you see anything unusual that night or, you know? Her boyfriend watched her walk to Recreation Park, which is five blocks from her home. That house was there. There was another little house that they first moved into right back here. She didn't have she didn't have a boyfriend. The pieces that I put together are not good. It does not end up into a good puzzle. I don't even remember the police coming to the house, to be honest with you. But mostly gentle and kind is what I remember about her. She didn't want to share something. She was hiding something. And her mom told me it was a new boyfriend. I'm like, but she didn't tell me about this boyfriend. I don't know anything about this boyfriend. So are you telling me that law enforcement never interviewed you back then? Never. She's not going to, you're going to run away with no money. Close, I want to say over 3000 close to $4,000 in her savings account. And then we'd all be hanging out together now instead of doing a podcast about her.
Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes, get the episodes early, and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Did not leave a crater of any size. It's uh, has about one foot clearance on the ground. We're uh, essentially on a very level place here. Uh, I can see uh, some evidence of, uh, of rays emanating from the descent engine, but uh, very insignificant amount. In July of 1969, when Neil Armstrong in a clumsy spacesuit carefully made his way down that ladder and set his foot on the moon. The little girl named Barbara was three years and eight months of age. Bring down the camera. I'm already, I think it's about two miles squared away in good shape. She could probably carefully back her own way down a ladder on the playground and then take that last leap into the sawdust or sand. Neil Armstrong skipped around the moon and studied rock formations. The little girl named Barbara skipped rope with her sister and other friends. Later, when Barbara was 15 years old, on the first full day of her disappearance, April 12, 1981, NASA launched the first ever successful flight of a space-rated orbiter, or space shuttle, the Columbia. Forty years later, just a few weeks ago, NASA dropped an SUV-sized rover on the planet Mars, and with it they sent a small flying helicopter. The solar-powered helicopter can only fly for 90 seconds at a time before recharging its batteries, but the point is, if things go as planned, we will soon be flying on another planet. In fact, listen to this coincidence. NASA has just detached the helicopter from the rover, and they say it just survived its first full night by itself on the surface of Mars, where temperatures get down to minus 130 degrees Fahrenheit, or minus 90 degrees Celsius. NASA had been concerned that the cold temperatures might snap the circuitry of the helicopter, but so far it survived the night. Today, NASA announced that if all things go as planned, the helicopter will make its first flight attempt no sooner than, wait for it, the evening of April 11th, the 40th anniversary of Barbara's disappearance. Going about one kilometer per second at an altitude of about 16 kilometers from the surface of Mars. We have entered... When frustrated with failures of others, people sometimes use the following expression. We can put a man on the moon, but we can't do this. Forty years after Barbara vanished, will we be saying, we can fly a helicopter on Mars, but we never did figure out what happened to one 15-year-old girl in 1981. And when someone, like myself, or some thing, like an organization, is confronted with mistakes they've made, or when our shortcomings are pointed out by others, another expression pops up quite suddenly. This expression goes something like this. Hey, I'm only human. We're dealing with humans here. 
which of course we are, all of us, simply human, absolutely full of flaws and drawbacks and far from perfect. Far from perfect, but also humans who put a helicopter on another planet. We have our flaws, but every one of us is so capable of achieving the most amazing accomplishments. Accomplishments like finding out what happened to a 15-year-old girl in Williston, even 40 years after the fact. Isn't it interesting that we humans become so wonderfully humane and in touch with our own humanness when we make mistakes ourselves, when we are suddenly faced with our own shortcomings? We suddenly want to point out that we're only human, have some understanding and patience with me. When others make mistakes, we don't always see things the same way. We are suddenly a little less humane, a little less forgiving. And of course, simply being human shouldn't be and cannot be a blanket excuse or catch-all explanation for all of our behaviors. What would society look like if everyone got a free pass, a I'm-only-human card to flash around every time they came under scrutiny? For example, a rapist cannot be allowed to go unpunished for 40 years simply because he might be human. That does not excuse his horrific crimes. Sure, his humanness might and should grant him some empathy. I mean, we don't stone people to death, after all. But there need to be consequences for horrific crimes like rape. Consequences that need to be seen through to the end, no matter what. Sometimes these consequences are legal ones, criminal charges, punishment, prison time. Other times the consequences are more subtle. Maybe sometimes a perpetrator just needs to know that his actions are in no way forgotten and to understand that with every new fish he pulls from the lake, he will be reminded that the reality of his offenses has simply not gone away. It is still lingering in the atmosphere and is very much on the minds of many. And now, tens of thousands of people on planet Earth have heard about what you've done. And like a beacon on Mars, they are collectively percolating, broadcasting, and beaming little unyielding warnings to him and his co-conspirators that if he ever again touches another one of our daughters, things are going to be very, very different very quickly. Your I'm only human card is not valid here. But, in other cases, things not like rape, we can sometimes forgive and forget the shortcomings of others because we realize we are all simply human. If that little helicopter on Mars for some reason fails to take flight, we might possibly just say, well NASA, better luck next time, you gave it your best. Because there are two things that help us to forgive and to forget, to move on and to move forward. When humans fail, we take great, great comfort if we know that they have done their very, very best, that they tried and gave it a hundred percent, because we can never ask for more than that. Another thing that helps us to forgive and forget and to move on is when humans admit to or own up to their own mistakes, when they take responsibility for it, and sometimes, maybe, even apologize. 
We don't always even need the apology. Sometimes all we need to hear is we know and acknowledge that we could have done much, much better, and we feel bad about it. We didn't do our best. We fell short. We take responsibility. Sometimes that alone is enough to remind us that we are all just human and incredibly flawed and imperfect. We could all be better, better friends, better parents, better neighbors, better teachers, better podcasters, better humans. I'll never forget something that happened to me about three years ago while I was driving through Minnesota on a small highway. I had not seen a speed limit sign for a while, and it wasn't an area I was familiar with. It was a winding highway just outside of a town. I got pulled over by a cop. I was probably doing 55 and a 45 or something like that. So I got my license out, and while the trooper walked towards my vehicle, sure enough, I noticed a speed limit sign just up ahead on the highway, so now I knew I had been speeding. I could have tried to explain. I could have said, you know, these roads should be marked better, and how could I know what the speed limit is here? It's not my fault. But I didn't. That would be just making up excuses, wouldn't it? I mean, as a driver, it's my responsibility, no one else's, to know what the speed limit is. So when the trooper took my license, he asked me if I knew why he had stopped me. I said, I do now. I see that sign up ahead. I was driving faster than that. Then I said, I'm sorry about that. I should have been paying better attention to the speed limit. That's my responsibility. The state trooper went back to his vehicle to run my name and numbers, making sure there wasn't a warrant out for me or anything. Meanwhile, I contemplated how much this ticket was going to cost me. But I'll never forget what he did when he returned with my driver's license. He said, thank you for your patience. I'm going to leave you with a warning this time. I expressed my gratitude, and then he said something I'll never forget. Sometimes it's just nice to hear when people take accountability and apologize. And then he let me move on with my day. I moved on, and he moved on. I still drive that way sometimes, and I always think about what he said, and I certainly never drive too fast. Acknowledging our failures and mistakes, being honest about it, not making up excuses, asking for forgiveness, that all brings people together instead of pushing them apart. And it helps people to move on and to heal. And that is why I say this is a story that I never wanted to tell, because the story that Barbara has brought to me is this. In regards to how Barbara's disappearance was handled, we humans collectively did not do our very best. We failed her, and we are still failing her to this day. I believe the community of Williston and others have already figured this out. It's been here all along between the lines. I don't know about you, but I've been fighting this reality, pushing it away, not wanting to go there or believe it or be the one to say it. But it's true. We failed Barbara. We did not do our very best or give it our all. And for that reason, as much as I hate to admit it, I now believe that the Cotton family and Sandy Evanson and Barbara's other friends and the community of Williston, they all deserve an apology. And I think that apology needs to happen soon. If an apology is not possible, at the very least someone or some thing needs to own this and take at the very least a symbolic form of accountability for things gone wrong. Ideally, this apology must come from the organization that inherited this mystery, the Williston PD. As I see it, humans failed, Barbara, no one person or one thing, but the Williston PD is, regardless, the current-day face of the failure. 
the detectives there today were not even born when Barbara went missing, and I don't think anyone is asking them to personally take accountability for mistakes made in 1981. On the other hand, in my opinion, they need to acknowledge them in the name of Barbara Cotton and in the name of our love for daughters everywhere. If the community of Williston is to heal from this sad story, if the memory of Barbara Louise Cotton is to truly and sincerely be honored, I believe the only path forward is for everyone to start being honest. Is it fair that human beings who were not even born when Barbara vanished have to be put in this situation? No, maybe it's not fair. But on the other hand, what an absolutely wonderful opportunity they have to make a real difference these present-day investigators, an opportunity to be real, to rise above the incredibly transparent politics and public relations efforts, to be the kind of human being that can put a helicopter on Mars or, 40 years later, bring home Barbara Louise Cotton. Now I'd like to demonstrate why I think it's obvious that humans failed Barbara Cotton. Some of you don't need this evidence or argument. You already know what I'm talking about. But I can't suggest what I've suggested without offering some facts or background. First this, though. I have, of course, received some, although very little, feedback that we should quote-unquote not pick on the cops. I've also received a message or two more or less saying, cops are not bad, or I can tell that your listeners think cops are bad. This kind of black-and-white thinking confuses me. Words like good or bad are worthless here and have nothing to do with how law enforcement are or how they've been portrayed here or will be portrayed here. These words don't even help us at all. Cops are humans, and humans are mostly good. Nobody has said anything about cops being bad. The only way to find out what happened to Barbara Cotton is to look at the whole picture, and that's what we are going to do. And besides, good people, good humans, good cops... They all understand implicitly that to be questioned and scrutinized is a part of life. It's not a personal attack. So where did we fail, Barbara? There are many indicators of this, and you don't have to be in law enforcement or have been alive in 1981 to spot them. It is also important to consider the various stages of the investigation and how they were handled or what should have been done in each stage. The first day, the first week, the first month, the first six months, the first year, the first five years, 10, 20, 25, 30, 35, and finally 40 years later. Some investigative work would be expected to be done the first day or first week. Other things might come into play later. For example, we might say, well, I can understand if they didn't talk to Barbara's sister, the girl that shared a bedroom with Barbara, on the very first day she went missing, they were probably thinking that Barbara would walk in the door any minute. But can any person in their right mind say, I can understand that they would wait 37 years to interview Barbara's siblings? Yeah, nobody bothered to ask me anything. I don't even remember the police coming to the house, to be honest with you. Did the police ever talk to you personally? back then not that i remember they might have but i i truly don't remember talking in what world on what planet not mars surely in what galaxy does that make any sense at all but the biggest indication that humans did not do their best was law enforcement's failure to interview at least two of the last known people allegedly seen with barbara cotton 
One of these persons was Stacy Werder, the mysterious boyfriend, the guy Louise said Barbara was with earlier in the evening, the guy who used to wash dishes at Cakes and Cones, the guy who hung himself in jail three months later in Malta, Montana. This individual should have absolutely been interviewed, and let me be clear when I say interviewed, I mean sat down with, spoken to, asked questions, documented in a police report. The other person the police apparently have no record of speaking with back then is the unnamed friend who was allegedly with Barbara at a party, at least according to Louise Cotton. To dissect these two points, I'm going to refer to our interview with Detective Hendricks, which you can hear in its entirety in Episode 6. We will go into detail here, but in a nutshell, present-day Williston PD wants us to accept that missing these two key interviews was not a big deal, or that maybe the interviews did take place, but the fact that they were never documented is not a big deal, or at least it wasn't a big deal in 1981 because things were different back then. With the help of input and insight from some cops I've spoken with, I'd like to demonstrate to you why some of what Williston PD asked us to consider as acceptable is nonsense. Suddenly, I feel I want to remind you that this is not a story I want to be telling you. This story does not bring me any pleasure. On the contrary. And yet, inside of me, there is this strong sense of an obligation to Barbara Louise Cotton, not to speak for her, but to tell the story I've discovered. I also want to say to Detective Hendricks and the other detectives at Wilston PD that I feel, I guess, bad that you were put in this situation. I have a strong suspicion you were thrown into this interview and expected to both attempt to share information, but also uphold the reputation of the agency you work for at any cost. In some ways, you were put in an impossible situation. It wasn't fair to you, I think, and people understand that. I've spoken with four people within law enforcement and asked them to listen to this podcast and to the interview with Detective Hendricks. The police officers I spoke with span several generations and two states, North Dakota and Minnesota. Two are still on the force, two are retired, three of the four were cops in the early 80s. None are from the Williston area. The main point I wanted to get at in my interview with Detective Hendricks was, had Stacy Werder been somehow cleared of any suspicion in Barbara's case? The reason for this was due to what we discovered in Episode 5 with my interviews with Stacy Werder's sisters. Both sisters were strongly of the opinion and belief that Stacy was involved with Barb's disappearance. One sister, Laura, was the last person to speak to her brother just a few hours before he committed suicide three months after Barb went missing. In fact, he told her on that last phone call, Tell Mom I love her. I'm sorry for what I did. Both sisters believe to this day that Stacy is responsible for Barbara's disappearance, and yet no law enforcement, not Williston PD or any other, had ever spoken with these two sisters about Barbara Cotton or their brother Stacy. Laura even told us that over the years, her and her sister and others in the family have talked about their brother Stacy now and then, and they always tell people they think he killed a girl named Barb Cotton and hung himself. And so suddenly, myself and several thousand listeners wanted to know, did Stacy Werder have an alibi, or was he cleared somehow? That's how we walked into that interview. I also want to say real quick that I do realize that Williston PD was doing us a favor, a courtesy, by granting us an interview in the first place. But I'd also like to note that I granted them a courtesy as well by sending them my questions ahead of time, which is pretty uncommon. 
and my questions about Stacy Werder were included in those. After some effort, I was able to ask Detective Hendricks if anywhere in those boxes of records and files there was a report by a law enforcement officer, someone who stated he or she had spoken with Stacy Werder, and the answer was no. Right then and there, the Williston PD had a choice, just like I had a choice when I got pulled over by the state trooper in Minnesota. Own it or make up excuses. Owning it would be saying something like, Obviously, Stacy Werder should have been interviewed at length. Obviously, if he had been, it would have been documented, if not at the time, at least retroactively, after Barbara had been missing for a few weeks. We realize we made mistakes. We feel bad about it. I am fully confident that, had that happened, people all over the world listening to this podcast would have a much different feeling in their stomachs and in their hearts today. Because that's not the way it went. Instead, we were asked to accept that such an interview an interview with one of the last people to have seen Barbara Cotton alive, might have taken place, but not have been documented, and that itself, the lack of documentation, was not unusual for the era, nor any really call for alarm. This is the opposite of being real. This is the opposite of owning up to mistakes made. This would be me on the side of the road in Minnesota saying, I wasn't speeding, or this road is not marked, or it's not a big deal. And then, I'm sure, the trooper would not have let me move on with my day. We were asked to understand that even today, cops don't document everything, which is true, of course. But isn't the absence of the record indication that they weren't? No, not necessarily. I mean, I go out and I talk to lots of people. I mean, even in today's age, um, you know, I'll be out looking for a witness to a crime and, you know, maybe my crime happened, you know, it's an injury accident at second and 11th. And, you know, I go and just kind of canvas and talk to people. I don't necessarily do reports on all of that until I find somebody who's got the information. Detective Hendricks is not wrong, but we are talking about apples and oranges, two different things. What Detective Hendricks is talking about when she says, even to this day, I don't document everything, what she means is something different than what we're talking about. Like, let's say a cop gets a call that a red Ford pickup was just stolen in front of a house. It's headed west on 9th Street. The cop responds, sees the guy raking leaves in front of his yard. The cop stops and says, hey, did you see a red pickup drive by? And the guy says, no, no cars passed here in 10 minutes or something like that. Sure, a cop would not document that. That is what Detective Hendricks is talking about. She's absolutely correct. But this would never be the case in regards to an interaction with the last person or persons to have seen a missing 15-year-old girl. The following is what one retired law enforcement officer had to say about this. As you might imagine, he asked to remain anonymous, which highlights another issue that we should touch on. It is basically taboo to ever speak out against a fellow law enforcement officer which is a problem, a problem for another podcast, perhaps. Anyway, this is what he had to say. A missing child is one of the most serious and important things we investigate. Is now, was then, and I must assume children had the same intrinsic value in 1981. Initially, it might not be a high priority, assuming an unruly child that will return tomorrow or the day after, but with every passing day, the urgency increases, as does the investigative priority. Perhaps some officers and investigators were, quote, paperwork lazy, unquote, and didn't document low-priority interactions very well. Given that that does happen and is common, one would have to assume that after she had been missing for several weeks, 
a deliberate effort for all officers and investigators to retrace their steps in order to document who they talked to, when they talked to them, and what was said should have been done. If not on the individual officer or investigator's own initiative, it should have been ordered down by leadership. I must say the interview with Detective Hendricks was frustrating to listen to. I would not have been so generous to my colleagues of the past. It is my guess that there is no documentation that investigators actually talked to Stacy Werder because they didn't. You can't detail the results of something that never took place. He had to be a person of interest then, and an officer or investigator would document that encounter if it took place. You have a right to be suspicious of incompetence, perhaps not conclusively in the quality of the investigation, but certainly in the quality of the written record. Another cop I spoke to has worked in North Dakota since the early 80s and is still on the force. He had this to say. I think the detectives were sincere. I like the idea that they're open to working together with you. I have to concur with you regarding the documentation. Back then we did follow up with continuation reports, and in small town North Dakota and Williston PD, they would have done the same. It's not imaginable the detective wouldn't have been doing supplements as they went on in the investigation. Said another cop who was working in 81, a guy with decades of experience, a man who rose through the ranks. I was getting frustrated early on as it seemed that she was avoiding your questions regarding as to whether Stacy had been interviewed. If they aren't missing some of the case files, the initial investigation was a joke and done poorly. Writing notes down and not properly documenting is just not good police work. I could probably go on and on at length, but I don't feel like I need to or want to use a hammer to get this point across. Some of you at this point are probably wondering or asking yourselves, what good does this do us, James? So we determined that the initial investigation was flawed. How does that help us now? And I agree that we do need to move past this, but that's the problem. It's like we are still pulled over on the side of the road, not moving forward, unable to move on. In order for the community of Williston to move forward, to forgive and forget and to heal, they need to hear a different, more honest tune about Barbara's story. At this point, the problem is not that humans made mistakes in the investigation. The problem is that they are not being acknowledged. Humans failed Barbara, and somewhere out there, there is a public relations consultant or expert who knows exactly what I mean when I say the only way to salvage and repair any kind of meaningful elements of the story of Barbara Cotton is for the Williston Police Department to bow their heads, and if an apology is too difficult, then they should at least acknowledge that we all failed Barbara. That's all it would take. I don't even know if an apology is required. Just a smidgen of accountability. This is not about if cops are good or bad. It's about whether or not the story of one of our daughters is being told respectfully. In all respect, Detective Hendricks is incorrect. It's not factual that in 1981 things were so different, different to the point that interviewing the last known person to be in the company of a missing girl might not be vital enough and important enough to document. That is not something that can be just shrugged off with things were different back then. This is what I meant when I said this is a story I never wanted to tell. Nobody, not me. Not police, not media, not politicians, nor presidents, or fathers, or mothers, or neighbors. Nobody should be allowed to simply invent their own version of reality and then not expect to be called out on it. 
Words matter and facts matter. If we lose touch with that, we are all doomed. After the break, I want to tell you about a mistake I might be making. I've already told you this is not a story I want to be telling. I've also said I feel bad that present-day Williston PD need to be put in this situations. Cops are not bad any more than I am bad or you are bad. Cops are human, they are underpaid, overworked, and they put their lives on the line every day. Which brings me to something else I want to talk about. The fact that perhaps my own expectations on present-day Williston PD are too high, at least in regards to Barbara's case. I acknowledge that sometimes we, that is myself and my listeners, might lose some perspective. One of those cops I told you about that I spoke with had this to say. Although from reading from the comments of your listeners, they feel that Williston PD should focus all their energy on resolving this case. They don't have that luxury, something I'm very familiar with. His point was well taken. I reached out to the head of detectives at Williston PD, Steve Gutnick, and I asked him how their workload is these days. This is what he said. Currently, the detectives list 124 active cases, which averages just over 11 cases per detective. Some of the detectives have other duties they also attend to as well, such as supervision, PIO, or community engagement. I would say the detectives, depending on assignment, carry about 5 to 10 cases that are very active and need current work. Then they probably have another 5 that they are waiting on some sort of informational need, such as lab results. This does put some things in perspective, and partially for this reason, I have started a petition asking the Williston Chief of Police, David Peterson, to hire or bring in a pro bono investigator dedicated to Barbara's case. I'll tell you in a moment where you too can sign that petition if you would like. My thought was this. If part of the issue comes down to resources, let's fix it now. Time is of the essence. Let's face it, nobody's getting any younger, and that includes everyone who might know something. Maybe this is a way we can actually help Williston PD. They have limited resources. Anyone who's ever held a job knows you just can't go to your boss and say, Hey, give me more help with this. I need help. Hire someone. I mean, Detective Hendricks can't go to Gutnick and say that. And can Gutnick just waltz into the chief's office and demand more resources? Unlikely. But who knows? If we manage to get a few thousand signatures, maybe Chief Peterson can go to the city council and say, Look, a lot of people think this is important. Can I get some more resources or more money? Can we do anything about this? I'm confident that we can help improve the resources situation, and I'm hoping we can do that soon. In fact, last night I got an email from a listener offering to pay $1,000 if it would go towards paying a detective to look into this case. Because it is clear we need to do something. The way things are at present is almost disrespectful to Barbara. I felt that last week. Something happened that made me, well, not so much frustrated, just sad, and it demonstrates that more resources would be helpful. Here's what happened. Episode 9 was about Frank J. De La Pena, a person of interest in Barbara's case. If you've not listened to it, you should check it out. But here's a mini recap. Frank De La Pena was in Williston when Barbara vanished. Three weeks later, he left, then murdered two girls in Wyoming. He was driving a van pulling a camper trailer. He was apprehended in Colorado soon after the murders down there, and then he hung himself in jail. In May of 1981, while Wyoming was investigating their double homicide of the two young girls, they started looking into Dela Pena's past, and they traced them back to Williston, North Dakota, and then they called the Williston PD. 
Wyoming, of course, knew nothing of Barbara Cotton or her disappearance on April 11th, a month earlier. They wanted any potential info on their perpetrator, Frank J. De La Pena. So in a nutshell, just a few weeks after Barbara vanished, investigators in Wyoming called Williston PD and said, hey, we got this guy who killed two girls here. He was in Williston until May 5th. You got anything on him? I don't know this for a fact, but it certainly doesn't feel like this call from Wyoming raised any eyebrows in regards to Barbara's disappearance. I'm basing this feeling on what Detective Hendricks told us. I interpret the following as that it was Team Adam and the present-day investigators who sort of spotted this clue about a year ago. Here is Detective Hendricks. In May of 1981, we had received information from Wyoming um, that they had a double homicide of two young girls down in Rawlings, Wyoming. Um, and that they had a witness that stated that a white van with North Dakota license plates on it was trying to pick up young girls. He stated that the plate came back to Frank Pena of Williston. Um, and this is just, a, I, I think when we were all going back through this case file with Team Adam, you know, this just kind of was a huge red flag for us was his, um, you know, we had this subject in our area in 1981 around the time that Barb went missing, um, who was later um, uh, picked up for two counts of murder in Wyoming, but subsequently um, committed suicide in jail right after he was arrested. A couple weeks ago, maybe three, I reached out to Williston PD and asked for a mugshot of Frank de la Pena. They thought it was a great idea for me to get his picture out there in case anyone recognized him or maybe remembered him with Barbara. They would take a look and see what they had and get back to me. But I never heard back, probably because of the workload they have that we were just discussing. And so I figured we would just go get the mugshot and the police files from the source ourselves. So I called the arresting agency in Hugo, Colorado, where Frank de la Pena was apprehended and also where he took his own life. Perhaps you will recall that we got some help from Emily Hirsch, who lives in Denver and drove to Hugo on our behalf. And we, of course, all started thinking, wait, if Frank de la Pena abducted and murdered two girls in his van and trailer, and that van and trailer was processed for evidence, maybe that evidence is still in existence. Maybe there are photographs of the interior of his trailer. Maybe there is DNA from Barbara Cotton in that evidence. And in my galaxy, anyway, if that evidence exists, I assume it's been requested and analyzed for Barbara's case. So I asked. I sent the following email to Detective Hendricks on March 31st. I asked, has the evidence gathered in Della Pena's crime in Wyoming ever been requested by Williston PD or other agency investigating Barbara's case? Example, photos of inside of the vehicles or hair, etc., in an effort to try to tie him to Barbara. Her response was the standard response for open cases. Regarding our investigation with De La Pena, we are unable to release any information other than he is a person of interest in Barbara's disappearance. I released episode 9 with all the information I had gathered about De La Pena from the documents from Hugo, Colorado, on March 30th. This weekend, Emily Hirsch sent me a text. She had reached out to the detective at Hugo, Colorado to thank him for his time, and he had called her back. Here she is. Hey, Emily, how are you? I'm pretty good, James. How are you doing? Good. Um, 
Yeah, I want to talk to you about something that's been on my mind because you told me something the other day that at first made me a little frustrated and then it just made me kind of sad. And But to start with, let's remind everyone, you you drove out to Hugo, Colorado to get this, to take pictures of the police file in regards to the arrest and suicide and everything of Frank de la Pena. And when was that again? That was on March 25th, which was a Thursday. Um, I went out to Hugo and met with Under Sheriff Nall and took all those photos, and I think I sent them to you later that night. Right, right. And I worked on that. That's when I was working on the episode about De La Pena. And I put that out a few days later on March 30th. So, mm-hmm. and that's when I tell everyone, and if you haven't listened to episode nine, you should, um, about how you know the, the the timeline basically of Frank de la Pena when he left Williston um the people he tried to abduct and everything and and then you got a call from or you called well you tell us you called uh, Hugo Colorado to thank them right and when was, and yeah. when did you talk to them um it was so it was the next Thursday so April 1st um i called a couple times they were having trouble with their voicemail system but i left some messages and then um under Sheriff Nall returned my call the next day, um, April 2nd, that Friday. Let's see. March 30th is when I put the podcast out. Mm-hmm. And so two days later, you talked to him. Correct, yeah. And what did he say? He said, um, he said, oh, yeah, I got a request from North Dakota <laughs> for the file. <laughs> And he said they were investigating the disappearance of a 15-year-old girl, but he had said the girl's name was Amber. Um, right. I'm not sure if he was confused with the investigating officer, perhaps, but later that evening, Friday evening, I sent him an email to kind of clarify, asking him. I got an email this morning from Emily again, and she said she had heard back from Hugo, Colorado, and the detective who had requested this was Amber at Williston PD. Yeah, yeah. He said they just wanted a copy of the file. Um, I, in my, I had offered to send him the photographs and he said, no, it was fine. He already had his secretary copy it all and send it off. So I'll just ask you, I guess you're right here. (laughs) I mean, my thought, the reason I was frustrated was because I think two days earlier I had asked not that they owe us any answers, because it's an mm-hmm. open and ongoing case. Wilson PD owes us nothing. And, you know, they, they are the ones that told us about De La Pena. And I also asked, have they requested all of the potential evidence in Wyoming and Colorado? Like, maybe there is photographs of the interior of the van. Mm-hmm. And what if, I mean, super long shot, right? What if... Barbara's jacket is in that picture in a van. You know what I mean? Like, right? Yeah, that could be anything. I've just assumed that all of this has been done. So I guess what made me frustrated and ultimately sad is that I find out that two days after I release episode nine, in which is about Frank de la Pena, and you're in there, you said I drove to Hugo, Colorado, and talked with this deputy or sheriff. And he helped me with the file. Two days later, he's telling you that Williston PD is doing the same thing. So, I mean, since you're here, I could ask anyone this question, but do you understand why that makes me sad? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, it seems if they had that name, you know, way back when, it seems like they should have followed up um, at the time to figure out, find out everything they could have about him. And part of the equation or the uh, algorithm, however you want to call it, is the 40 years part. Like, mm-hmm. I realize that they have a lot on their plate at Williston PD. We all realize right. that, I think. And Barbara Cotton's case is probably not at the top of their pile. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's why I am working on a petition, basically. And maybe maybe part of the solution is getting dedicated resources to Barbara's case. Like, we can't expect Detective Hendricks or anyone else to have time to do everything, even if I feel like they should have had that file from Hugo. Um, right. More resources has got to be a good thing, and they've got plenty of people offering help. And yeah, I don't know. That's just my thought. It's just I don't know. It's just a shame. <laughs> it makes you wonder, you know, how many other missing people, you know, who don't have the, you know, this community kind of surrounding them, and that have come out of the woodwork to try and solve their case. This is the kind of stuff I mean when I say it's not a story I want to be telling because it's just kind of, well, sad. I'm just a guy with a microphone. If Williston PD, no, if any law enforcement agency is following my lead, we have problems. And Barbara deserves better. And that's why I say Williston PD needs more resources on this case. I should be just one step behind them at best, not the other way around. Now, it wouldn't be right to end this last episode before the 40th anniversary of her disappearance without touching again on Barbara and who she was. We've learned a lot about Barbara. Kind to a fault, maybe. Too trusting, perhaps. But what a wonderful quality she had, accepting everyone. She said Hell's Angels were just misunderstood. She let someone sleep on her couch because he needed a place to crash for a while. Every single friend of hers I've spoken with said she would give you anything. Barbara is a connector. She brought us all together. For all we know, she's the one pulling the strings. Her sister Kathy told me once that when she and Barbara would fight, as siblings sometimes do, Barbara would always say, be nice. Be nice. Some people have asked recently, what would Barbara think or say if she could see the incredible outpour of support for her now? People traveling from around the country to meet in Recreation Park to celebrate her life. Maybe she would say, be nice. Be nice to each other. And I have to wonder, what would Barbara say to me when I say, in order to move on, someone or something needs to own the reality of her story and to acknowledge that her story should have been a much different one? Maybe she would say, James, be nice. If she did, my response would be something like this. Barbara, I'm trying. I'm trying to be patient and nice and objective. But also, Barbara, like a little helicopter on Mars, I feel like I can only fly for a very short time before falling back to charge my batteries. And each time I lay down to sleep, I'm never quite certain if your story will survive another night out in the open and in the cold. And I want you to know, Barbara Cotton, that in the name of our love for daughters everywhere, if any two humans are to find you and finally bring you home, 
I hope it will be those two daughters, Detective Hendricks and her colleague, Amber, at the Williston Police Department. When they do bring you back to us, we will be here, cheering them on and welcoming you home. Please consider signing the petition asking the Chief of Police to add resources to Barbara Cotton's case. You can do so by going to change.org and searching for Barbara Cotton. It's just a signature with no money required. I've put a link in the show notes. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, James Wallner. This season is dedicated to my daughters and to all daughters everywhere. Some music in this season, including the song you're listening to now, provided by North Dakota-born, former Wishick area resident and UND grad Isaac Turner of Kalamazoo, Michigan, and his seemingly infinite number of musical bands and projects. This band is named Wowza in Kalamazoo. We also heard a little from his bands Out and the Hollis Group. Search for Wowza, Out, and the Hollis Group on Bandcamp.com or see the links in the show notes. Thanks much, Isaac and friends. To learn more about Missing Kids, check out the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at missingkids.org. To contact me, shoot me an email at dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. If you're loving this season, please tell your friends in real life and on social media and give me a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. And why not come and join us at the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Season 5, A Better Search for Barbara. Be safe, stay warm, and see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.